You're listening to Highlights from the Creative Process and One Planet podcast interview with April Gornick, award-winning landscape artist and founder of the Church Art Center in Sag Harbor, New York. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. And I've chosen my work because I've loved the outside world. I love the things outside of myself. I love what isn't immediate to me. And I love projecting onto that as a way of kind of trying to reach the distance between my inner self and vastness, but to try to do that in a way that makes other people feel inspired by it, not be chided for not taking care of it. It's not something that I intend to be a message per se, but I think it might be a better message if it's not saying, people, you've been bad. You have to change your evil ways. You know, I'd rather people look at the natural world and see the heartbreaking beauty of it and sense its fragility and its impermanence and their own impermanence and fragility and then have a response to that rather than say, you have to act, you have to do something. I would hope that would inspire action rather than to cudgel them with a directive. The church was built originally in 1835, and I'll skip the history, which is interesting but lengthy. And it came on the market. It was purchased by three other people and then us. And we renovated it to be an arts and creativity center. Arts is deeply important to us, but creativity in all its forms is equally important to encourage and extol at the church as far as we're concerned. We ended up calling it the church because everyone we knew, every like acquaintance and almost stranger and good friend said, you know what's happening at the church? Who owns it now? You should get it. Things like that. Anyway, so it, it was a natural place to develop that way. So we have art and we have poetry readings and we have dance performances and rehearsals and all of our residents are from different kinds of creative endeavors and we haven't quite enacted this as much as I would like but we want to have people that are computer scientists and composers and environmentalists anyone who is using creativity to make a positive change in the world and to express themselves that's the basic idea of it so when we started it up The idea was to be able to invite the community for civil, inspiring, generous conversations in an intimate setting. Because although it's a large building, we found that it feels very intimate inside and we left a lot of it very raw. It's unusual for an American renovation because you can see all the rafters and how it was built, basically, at the same time as you review an exhibition or watch someone dance. So that's been really exciting. People love it. And it seems to engender a kind of spiritual response. I don't know if it's in the architecture or what, but I am very serious when I say that most people that present there become more forthcoming and more generous and personal in their responses than normal. And they've told us that they they feel comfortable doing that. So I think it feels like a safe space for people, which is nice. I mean, there's two meanings for sanctuary. You can have a sanctuary, you can have a sanctuary. And I think it's a little bit of a creative sanctuary for people. People just don't think about place enough. We don't recognize the importance of place. I think it's a little bit the social media environment that we're living in now where we're all bent over a screen. But to locate yourself, to try to locate yourself in a place is reifying, it's identifying, it gives you a sense of positive self-consciousness, I think, if you find that you're comfortable or not. Just being able to feel out 
the positive or negative effects of a space or place is really, really important. And I don't think people spend enough time affording themselves that contemplation of place. And to go back to my work, that's a little bit what I'm doing is I've been trying to sort of locate myself outside of myself as a way of reflecting back on who I am as a person. That might sound odd, but it becomes an important metaphor for the broader, expansive self that I have going out into the universe, as well as my own limited personhood. And I need a lot of space to do that, so that's why the paintings are large, and that's why they're expansive. I'm glad that this show has been resonating strongly with people, because a lot of people have said, oh, these are more powerful paintings suddenly. And I thought, are they really? Because I don't think of them as being fundamentally different from work that I've done before, but for some reason, and maybe it's climate change and having more sensitivity to the fragility of the environment that's making them feel it. That's the other thing. It's like so overwhelming to people. This is a scale of problem that we have never encountered before. We talk about World War this and World War that. This is global catastrophe. It's huge. It's affecting literally every part of our whole planet. And it's importantly, I think, bigger than anyone can actually take in. And I think everyone has the best intentions of trying to make positive change, unless it disturbs their cell phone use and their car driving too much. I have to get a little more serious about that. You know, I was so mad at the Catholic Church and my upbringing and the way that my parents, my mother particularly, was so manipulated to think that if she did one thing for herself, that she was somehow hurting Jesus and the local priests. I mean, it's, it's such a brainwashing kind of situation. On the other hand, if you're raised Catholic, you're raised to believe in miracles and the idea of transubstantiation. And there's so many things about Catholicism. There's so much imagery in Catholicism that's magic, magical thinking, and all sorts of things that let your mind run free to a certain extent. You know, like don't get too close to sex or things like that. But in general, I think being raised a Catholic is a little bit of an advantage because it does give you a willful ability to like dream and, and just take off on crazy tangents, being raised from the dead, little things like that. And also philosophy, Augustine, and all the many books now about monks during the Middle Ages in Ireland and elsewhere who saved precious manuscripts of pagan thinking and saved civilization. By doing that. I mean, religious people tend to be seekers, and seekers tend to be the people that keep us whole and spiritually grounded and not just religious per se, particularly. AI is really scary to me, and I'm a big computer nut, and I use it to make paintings mm -hmm. all the time. Because all the compositions time. Compositions and stuff. Yeah. yeah, to like work out things in Photoshop, to sketch and fool around. But yeah, I mean, we're really looking down the maw of human replacement, too, and talking people into being happy about this. Really horrifying. It's a timely example because of the popularity of the movie Oppenheimer. There was a point at which Oppenheimer and others were talking to Congress and the UN and people that could affect positive change about the importance of making sure that the world agreed that nuclear mutual destruction would not happen. Just getting that agreement to start a conversation about how to restrict the use of and development of nuclear weaponry was critical to making the world not use nuclear weapons itself. 
And there's a huge difference in AI now because instead of having the conversation that you just described, which would be scientists talking to artists and creatives and religious leaders to, to hone down what could be altered, what could be damaged, how we could threaten ourselves inadvertently and unconsciously by allowing AI to develop without some kind of understanding of its power, because everything's a corporatocracy now. All governments that I can think of in the world are all corporatocracies. Everybody's trying to cash in on it before the proper research is done. There's some really good points to be made about trying to get a global understanding of what we're just about to step into, or maybe we're too far into it to draw back. But it's not too late to at least help people understand it and have a better consciousness of it. And by people, I mean governments. Recently, I'm just starting to read some Emerson, late in my life, but I'm glad that I've gotten to it because he talks about history and he says that folded into every person, if you think of this as a fractal situation, I was just reading about this and it blew my mind. There is the understanding and the containment of all of history, of all dreams, of all desires, of all the furthest reaches of our minds and our accomplishments are folded into every person. And how astonishing is that? I mean, I'm so mad at people all the time about what a mess everything is. On the other hand, we are astonishing. We're just astonishing and we have so much potential. But we're also so misdirected by advertising, by product placement, by, you know, false desires. And it's different if someone appreciates something of a beautiful taste or something. That's lovely. But to get everybody addicted to corn syrup and then have them all develop diabetes is really evil, in my opinion. So I'm just always swinging wildly between an appreciation at the amazement of the human spirit and humanity and its accomplishments and the frustration at the bad uses to which that's put. Bach is so important to me, certain music, Beethoven, Bach, Schubert, there's certain composers that are very important to me, and they are also inspirations for my work in a way that's almost impossible to describe, but it's deeply in the work. And I mean, if you think about the well-tempered clavier, those pieces are so, on the surface, simple. their exercises, but even they have these moments where my eyes wall up with tears, you know, and see the first one. Da -da 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 -da. There's something that just overtakes me when I get to the end of it, just with those little bit of changes. I don't know why Bach does that to me so profoundly, but it's all over his music. And what I like about it in terms of my work is, I think, because I've thought about this a lot, is that it's very non-narrative. So to arrive at some sort of emotional freighting, again, is kind of an accumulation of simple facts or simple phrases or whatever that with a certain turn, with a certain move, with a certain shift in my painting's light or shift in modality or major to a minor back to a major key in an immodulation, all of a sudden you feel this jolt that like goes right to your core that I think is so astonishing and I think that's something that I definitely aspire to in my work is to make these little shifts, like build them into the painting somehow so that you see these different conditions happening at once and you can move through the paintings and arrive at them on your own time. It's kind of like an offering I'm making to people that I hope has something like that. But that like 
again is sort of a stylist style like without any kind of particular flourishes or something that said when i was thinking about this at four in the morning i then started thinking about you know that great second movement of beethoven's seventh symphony where it gets like kind of anxious and i started thinking like yeah i love that too so i'm always all over the place but i mean what a what a wealth of riches we have to draw from in culture I'm just, I'm so worried about the world and I'm so worried about young people and I'm so worried about people's suffering. I think that people have to be super inventive and I think they have to reach deep into simpler pleasures. I think that's really important. And I'm talking about, you know, reading a book that's a book, which I don't. I read on my iPad principally, but I think that being outside and breathing air and understanding what air is and not accepting water that's bottled, but demanding clean water for everybody and to clean up the mess we've made is super important. And given the disdain for quote-unquote boomers that everyone seems to have now, with good reason, any advice coming from someone my age to someone who's young, I think might be annoying to them. But I think the pandemic taught us a lot about values and fundamentals and the importance of being able to relax and slow down. If there was anything that was good that came out of the pandemic, I think that it really did slow people down a lot in ways that they weren't expecting. And I hope that we don't lose that entirely. Bad as it was, I just think that was like a positive unintended consequence that somehow or another people have to like not lose their souls you know, like, look for your soul. That would be the best advice, I think, for any human on the planet. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. Johann Sebastian Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier, Book One, Prelude Number One in C Major, was recorded by Kimiko Ishizaka. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.